Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the good things it can do for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Fulta. I'm a professor at a major land-grant university that shall remain nameless. And welcome to this week's podcast. <laughs> they told me I can't be affiliated and do this. Well, all right. I guess they're lost. Um, Today's podcast is a little bit different because we have an outstanding story that I really want you to know about in the second half. We're going to discuss what's happening in the Klamath River Basin, and it really is a standoff of balancing environmental concerns against the needs of farming in the region and how we deal with a precious water supply, and that'll come up after the break. Before that, I really wanted to take this opportunity to thank you for listening It's been almost five complete years, which is fantastic, and answer some of your questions. And I got a few that uh, have come up recently, and I really wanted to address them here. So let's dive right in. Uh, Leah McGrath um, says, what is biodynamic farming? And so when we start to think about biodynamic farming, we have to think about the work of Rudolf Steiner. (laughs) <laughs> and Rudolf Steiner, this goes back to um, the early 1900s. And if you put yourself in the context of the time, you had Haber-Bosch, which was this great way of producing nitrogen for agriculture. And you had a discussion of hybridization of all of these new technologies that were coming to the fore and greatly increasing the ability of farmers to be productive. Couple this to improve transportation, uh, improvements in tractors, improvements in um, mechanization in general, and you all of a sudden had this, this explosive growth in the agricultural space that some people found a little bit uncomfortable. And you did see declines in soil health. You saw all kinds of other problems that were happening where the innovation didn't necessarily make things better. And there's lots of reasons for that, right? We know that. Um, you know, pesticides and other sorts of uh, insect and fungal controls were crude. Nobody knew exactly what was happening when a plant was sick. Uh, there were so many ways that the step towards agricultural improvement was a difficult one. So Steiner comes out of left field and says, well, we got to do it all differently. And and Steiner, I think, was a philosopher in Germany, but said that they could uh, do agriculture in different ways by linking agriculture with the spiritual vibe of the planet. And the idea here was to kind of do this holistic approach, a closed system where you had plants and animals living in happy, happy harmony And uh, there was a person in there, too, uh, in that happy loop. And so the idea of biodynamic farming, in its purest sense, was 
to somehow uh, uh, harness this mystical, spiritual energy of the universe and use that to somehow drive agriculture. And so the little bit of energy you took out as a human would kind of come back from those magical sources. And you had animals creating manures, manures creating nitrogen, nitrogen growing plants, everything's happy. But when you look at the level of pseudoscientific, <laughs> I almost said it, um, uh, garbage that came through this, it really was, uh, you start to really wonder. And some of the major uh, uh, questionable practices are things like you had to plant only under a specific phase of the moon, under a specific astrological sign. Uh, there's a strong astrological component. Some of the other types of ideas were like you would uh, take a horn from a bull and you would pack it full of manure and then you would plant this in the ground so that uh, to kind of conjure up the energy that was around it. And and uh, then you would take that, um, that horn um, after it was, uh, I can't remember what they do this, I think it's called Process 500, you would bury the bullhorn for six months in the soil, and then you would take the um, substance that was inside, the broken-down manure, and you would stir it with water for one hour. Okay, now it's vitalized. <laughs> and then you vitalize, you spray this um, uh, vitalized, and as they said, you know, dynamized solution over the acreage. And the idea was was that it would uh, improve crop quality because um, th there was this idea that the soil would breathe new vitality um, because of um, planting death and decay into the soil. Okay, so kind of circle of life angle, whatever, you know, kind of get that. So um, no one's ever really shown a benefit of biodynamic farming. It was much more of a um, rejection of modern agricultural techniques um, that really birthed the organic farming movement. Now, the difference between the two is pretty stark. I think there is a good amount of science to organic farming. It's just saying, how do we uh, work without certain inputs? So how do we work without synthetic fertilizers and synthetic insecticides or crop protection strategies and still be able to farm? And that's a science. And I think there's a lot of folks who work really hard to make that work. And I, and I buy into that. Um, you know, I'm certainly a supporter of organic farmers. They're some of the hardest working people out there because they have to be because they don't have the luxury of being able to use chemistry to solve problems. You got to do it through other types of methods. I do know a very sharp person who claims to be a biodynamic farmer. And I never really turned the screws on her too much on this. And so maybe I need to have her on as a guest. And I really like her a lot. I think she's, she's a really, really brilliant person. I can tell just, you know, I know her very, in a very cursory way. Yet um, she's somebody who, when you talk to her, the lights are on and she clearly it would be an outstanding guest. So I'm going to make a point to talk to her about that because... My guess is, is that she's just a really good organic farmer who calls it biodynamic because it sounds cool. I don't know. I, I don't know that she buys into the whole um, BS in the horn 
BS. <laughs> okay, so the next question was another one that some people would find somewhat related, but it was the question of what are what what is the story of cover crops and do they really work? And uh, this question uh, sent in by Dave. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's something here. And I, I do have a good colleague at the university who is um, an expert in this particular area. And uh, it'd be good to talk to her on the podcast. So you're, you're giving me some fertile ideas here for next guests. So cover crops are nothing more than crops that can take the place of crops on agricultural space. And these are um, plants that are planted that are not intended to be harvested for food, but have some sort of benefit towards either building soil or restoring soil uh, for the next crop that will be harvested for food. Pretty easy. So the idea is pretty simple. You grow something like, you know, in, in Florida is an excellent example. We're here in Florida where we grow from, um, say, fall where we have maybe a cycle of tomatoes, peppers, that kind of thing, maybe okra in the hot summer, different kinds of beans. Um, all of our annual crop production that happens in Florida soil uh, happens during the winter and kind of is winding down in May and June. We're kind of getting to the point where it's so hot, it's difficult to keep going. The nematode pressure becomes very strong. Fungal pressure is strong. You can't grow any kind of squash or cucumbers without powdery mildew taking them down. Um, your cucumbers, uh, I'm sorry, your peppers are full of uh, angular leaf spot. Your tomatoes are full of hornworms. It is a battle as you get into the heat and humidity of the summer. So many farmers find it is better to invest in the soil during that time than rather to fight nature and keep growing a crop. One of the things you can do is grow a cover crop. And a cover crop is nothing more than a type of crop that's adapted for the off-season environment, in our case, for the hot, disgusting Florida summer. And you grow the uh, cover crop, usually things like buckwheat, um, uh, well, a lot of things that just make a lot of biomass, you know, a huge root mass or huge above-ground mass, things like sun hemp, which is... Uh, a kind of um, Crotillaria gensia is, is the Latin name. It makes it a very strong, structural, large plant on top that grows extremely rapidly. And Crotillaria is a legume. So that means it's fixing nitrogen and putting nitrogen back into the soil. Other types of uh, beans like uh, iron clay bean, cow peas, that kind of thing. Uh, very inexpensive seeds that can be grown, uh, different clovers. They can be planted um, in the soil or in the sand as we have it, uh, really poor soils, they can be planted and then grown for so long, they suppress the weeds, they suppress the nematodes in some cases. It's believed that the plants have allelopathic effects, meaning that they produce chemistry that pushes the negatives away, whether they're weeds or uh, insects or, or um, nematodes, whatever. Um, other folks use things like brassicas, because there's some limited data out there that says that if you grow um, different brassicas, that they produce the compounds called glucosinolates, the things that make wasabi tasty and hot. Um, those glucosinolates, when you take the plant and, and till it back in, or you know cultivate it back in, you now place those into the soil, and those are thought to suppress nematodes and other types of soil problems or pests. 
So the idea here is to use that off-season effectively. Rather than let it go fallow with leads, weeds, fill it with a crop that could potentially, although not being harvested, improve that space. We know that in a place like Florida, that simply by cultivating back in organic matter, meaning, you know, just the stems and leaves of plants above ground, you increase the, the soil's capacity to hold water, um, hold nutrients. You know, it just isn't water percolating through soil. It's actually being held in place longer because of the residues of the plant that you incorporated. So I think there's a lot to cover crops, and I think if used in strategic ways, could have benefit. The downside, of course, is that you're buying seed that you're not going to harvest. <laughs> so it's expensive seed. You throw a, an acre of that stuff out there or however many acres you have, and you need to get more benefit from it than you do the cost of the seed. And so it can be an expensive um, outing. And so it's cost and benefit are the things that scientists are always thinking about. And we'll have Dr. Danielle Treadwell on with us sometime soon. She's an expert in this area and a super cool scientist who you'll love. So we'll do that soon. The last question um, is a little more of a personal one. It says, where is your commitment to transparency? And why is that no longer on your website? And this comes from someone who I won't mention because they've trolled me for years, but it's an important topic. So back in 2015, uh, there was, uh, I was under intense FOIA requests. And uh, my emails were going everywhere. The university revealed, of course, the old story of um, a uh, donation that was made to a science communication program that I was affiliated with. And um, that donation came from a big ag company that everybody freaked out about. And it, you know, clearly everything I've said was being bought by this company, right? And it turns out we never used any of the money. It was a huge controversy, blah, blah, blah. But one of the things I had to do in response to that was have this very strong commitment to transparency, that every penny that I was receiving, whether it was being reimbursed the exact cost of a trip, um, and I go to your university to talk, I go visit your farm group, whatever, um, it's good to have my expenses covered because I don't have money for that. So um, I was being reimbursed and uh, typically, occasionally I would get an honorarium. Maybe it was 100 bucks. One time it was 2500 That was great. Another time it was, I think, 5000 It was fantastic. But, you know, when the other speaker who was the other keynote was getting 35000 they, you know, kind of, they throw me a bone, you know, it's not, not so bad. So that was good. And the other thought is sometimes I do these talks and although the organizers say we'll, you know, cover your costs, either they don't because they don't, <laughs> you know, you, you try to get them to, to respond and they don't. And it's, you know, there's some organizations that aren't terribly scrupulous um, and so in other times I just, you know, forget to turn in an Uber receipt and over the years of 600 talks, you find yourself in the hole, not, not to mention I'm taking off Saturdays and Sundays to travel. So I'm not traveling during the work week, blah, 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 you know, the whole story. So, um, I was getting reimbursed or maybe even receiving an honorarium on rare occasion. And I put all this on a website and it was a huge amount of work. Here we go uh, through five years or so of doing this from 23, 20, 2013 until 
recently. I think I, I guess it was probably last year about this time, maybe May of 2019. And um, I received a FOIA request that was the University of Florida has received a request for you to provide all of your records with respect to travel going back to 2013, including all receipts and where the money went. So they not only wanted to see all of my receipts for the rental cars, the tank of gas I would buy, the hotel that I was in, the dinner I turned in a receipt for, the um, whatever. Uh, They also needed to see some sort of evidence that it was deposited into a university account or if it went to me personally, that it, you know, where it went, that kind of thing. And if you think about it, I think I had something like 600 entries in that form. And to go back through 600 entries and dig up receipts from 2013 is a bit of an onerous task. Now, to my credit and to my detriment, I retained those receipts. So these, by law, constitute public records. So here I was going back and looking through them, trying to find them, copy them. Remember, was this for a coffee I bought on the road on the way to, you know, university, you know, Michigan State University or where, you know, this is what it was like. And for the first half of 2019, I spent most of every Monday simply satisfying this anonymous, anonymous request because I'm compelled to do it by law. So here's your professor who's trying to teach your classes and do the research, um, busy chasing down a McDonald's receipt from 2013 because somebody out there doesn't believe that I paid for that quarter pounder with cheese and thinks it was probably Monsanto. (laughs) It was insane. And I was really upset about it. And it was an extremely challenging time because I want to work with my students. I want to work with my postdocs. I want to publish papers and do talks and do the things that I want to do as a scientist, not, not shag receipts for somebody who's saying, Hey monkey, jump through the hoop. I turned in, I don't know how many pages, thousands and thousands of pages of documents, including all the emails surrounding all of the individual invitations, statements about honoraria, all that stuff. All of it was turned in. And after, I guess, maybe four months, the anonymous person who requested them said, all of this is useless. You're not showing me exact accounting. You're just providing documents. Um, this is useless to me, but that's what FOIA does. It provides public records. It provides the receipts and the stuff. And so that's where it all ended up going. Um, if you want the explanation, pick up a phone and call me and we'll talk about it. But they didn't want that. You see, that's the problem. These things can go away. Your concerns and interests can be allayed very easily just by having a conversation rather than going nuclear and going to a university and pushing the buttons of these kinds of overreaching uh, and very expensive requests. An attorney had to go through every page of the emails I produced, and there were 
tens of thousands. So, good times. So, the uh, commitment to transparency, where did that go? <laughs> you missed my point. The commitment to transparency, I took down that website, and I took down that Excel sheet, and I won't add to it anymore. Because all it was doing was raising questions. And it was giving people opportunities to say, I need to see this $724 that you claim came from University of Missouri as reimbursement for airfare and hotel and a rental car to go get there. You know, Missouri, you know, that's right. That, that, that's, that's Monsanto State. And so how do we know that they didn't pay for it? This is the kind of thing that it was up against. And it, at this point, at the time, four years, going on five years, past the tremendous fallout, I can't give a few malicious people a place to waste my time. And as long as those things are public records, that potential's there. It's not required that I keep them. I kept them to be honest. I kept them to be transparent. And it backfired. So now everything that's a public record is kept. Anything that is a cursory record that has expired its utility is jettisoned. It goes through a shredder, into a fireplace, <laughs> and then I shoot a shotgun at the ashes. <laughs> it was one of the saddest times of my career. And uh, I think we're going to not go there again. So those are the three big questions that I had to deal with today. Um, we're going to have guests surrounding some of these topics as we go forward. So stick around for the second half of the Talking Biotech podcast. I think you'll find it fascinating. And I really want you to know what farmers are up against in certain parts of our country. This is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a minute. In the second week of June 2020, the Talking Biotech podcast will celebrate five years 243 episodes and well over a million downloads. We're proud of the diversity of guests and topics in agriculture, food, technology, and medicine. We are much more than biotechnology. And that's an important tip to all of you youngsters thinking about starting a podcast. Don't paint yourself into a corner with a wafer-thin podcast name. Because the Talking Biotech Podcast is much more than biotechnology. And while the numbers are sensational, we appreciate your support by sharing our tweets, Facebook posts, or even engaging in wonton defacing of public property with our URLs. Write it on an airplane barf bag. Leave it on the bulletin board at Whole Foods next to the business card of the crystal healer or the pet psychic. Give their mental colon a much-needed science cleanse. Now, most podcasts are DOA after 12 episodes or a few weeks. And as this podcast enters its sixth year, it is in the top 17 of life science podcasts, which I hope there's more than 18. Also, check out Cameron English and Kevin Volta on the Science Facts and Fallacies podcast, where they discuss this week's news from science. 
And of course, thank you for your support on Patreon. It's making a difference as we're now paying to advertise our podcast to new potential audiences. And now, back to this week's podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast, and for the second part of the podcast, we're going to speak with someone with regards to a situation that maybe has been a little bit, unfortunately, under the radar in light of recent events. I always like to keep everybody up to speed about issues in food and farming, particularly with issues that our growers face. We already know that there are tremendous uh, pressures on farmers and many challenges that are happening these days. And occasionally, sometimes policy gets in the way. But luckily, farmers get together and respond. And I really want you to understand what's happening there. And I really want to understand it as well. So today I'm joined by Ben Duval. Ben Duval is from uh, Ben Duval Farms in uh, the Klamath Basin of, uh, I guess, is that Oregon or California or both? <laughs> uh, the, the basin's in both. There's uh, about 100,000 acres on the California side and about 200,000 acres on the Oregon side in the project. Okay. And where are you located? I'm located in Tule Lake, California. Okay. So you're in Northern California then. And um, tell me a little bit about your operation and how long you've been doing it. So I started farming here in 2003. We, my wife and I, started a farm and we actually started it by purchasing uh, 122 acres from my grandfather who was a World War II veteran and this area was developed uh, mostly prior to World War II but some after World War II and as a this area was reclaimed it used to be some large lakes here and the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation developed a project which drained the lakes and developed them for agriculture. So after World War II, they invited veterans of World War II that had agricultural experience to come back here and they could apply for a homestead. And they put all the names into a lottery. And in the last drawing in 1949, which my grandfather applied for, there was over 5,000 applicants for 132 homesteads. He was one of the lucky ones that drew a homestead and was able to start farming here. So my family's been been farming in this area since 1949 and my grandfather retired and he sold his other land, but he kept his home place and he kind of wanted to keep it in the family. So he sold it to me in 2003 and that's how my wife and I got started and we've expanded since then and been farming here ever since. Well, what kind of crops either do you grow or what, what would we recognize that comes from that region and, and what time of year is it available? The crops, we, my own farm, we grow alfalfa and registered black Angus cattle. We also grow some barley and wheat in rotation. Um, other crops in the area are, there's a lot of potatoes that are grown here, um, primarily for chipping potatoes for Frito-Lay in and out. They buy a lot of potatoes here. Um, there's some fresh table stock that's grown here. And then a lot of dehydrating onions for processing, like you get in onion powder and soups and that that sort of thing. And then this is one of the only areas in the world that grows horseradish. 
And there's also um, mint, a lot of beef cattle, and some other, other small grains. Well, so all this agricultural region that was designed to serve farmers going back to World War II and to World War II is served the lifeblood of this area. The, the, the main function or the main uh, enabling entity is the Klamath River. And this is where, you know, apparently is the main water source that's used for irrigation of the area. So is it really just a question of this area can't survive without the river? Is it really dependent upon the river as an irrigation source? Absolutely. There's there's about 230,000 acres that are irrigated from the Klamath River here. And it is a high desert climate. So the rainfall in my end of the valley averages around eight inches a year. In other areas of the valley, it's um, as high as 14. But all of that's very low rainfall area. And agri- irrigation is absolutely vital for agricultural production here. And while it is a high desert climate, the other thing to remember is naturally this area was all underwater. It was, it was a lake. Um, every acre that I farm was under 10 to 20 feet of water. And the first part of the project was basically draining off and reclaiming that land. And then as it was reclaimed, then the irrigation works were developed to bring water back onto the land. So rather than the area just naturally flooding and being underwater, that there were some reservoirs built to store the water in the high flow seasons in the, in the winter and then have that water available, that stored water available to redistribute over the land. Uh, in the summer months when there's no rainfall. And because it's a lake bottom soil, it's some of the most incredible soil. Um, I've had people from all over the world come to visit my farm. And one of my favorite things to do is to take people out and let them dig in the dirt because everybody sticks their hand (laughs) in it and they just get a huge smile on their face because it's this wonderful, beautiful black loam. And it's, it's incredible soil. And all we need is the irrigation water and, we're very capable of producing some excellent crops. Yeah, I'm smiling when you say that myself because I I know what really beautiful soil is like. You know, we uh, we grow a lot in sand here in Florida. It's like a, a grow. It's horrible soil. But when you go down to the areas around the Everglades where they they basically are planting on what was previously a swamp. Uh, that was drained. So you have this uh, very dark black muck soil that just is, it's gorgeous, you know? So I really get that. Uh, But all of these things together, you really paint a picture that says that you're on this very much a razor's edge that's dependent upon that irrigation. And so Friday you were part of a protest and, you know, we've been seeing protests nationwide for many different reasons and a lot of things happening in the news this week that really maybe overshadowed the important events that you were involved with. Uh, You were involved in a convoy that was put together as a protest against something. Uh, Tell me what's happening in the region. So what's been happening is ever since the late nineties, we've been um, having to deal with increasing issues from the endangered species act. And we have in our main storage reservoir, which is upper Klamath Lake, just North of Klamath Falls, Oregon. That's our main storage reservoir. And there's an endangered fish in that lake. Uh, there's two species of sucker fish that live in that lake. And they have not been able to successfully reproduce for 
a, a whole host of reasons. And downriver, we have some endangered salmon that are that live in the Klamath River. And for over 20 years now, the easiest solution that anybody can come up with or so-called solution to protect these fish is to increase the minimum levels in our storage reservoir and increase the flows downriver. The problem is we're stuck in the middle. We also rely upon that water. And as more and more water needs to be held in the lake to protect those, those species and more water needs to go down river to protect those, there's less and less available for, for the project. And that's all very understandable. The problem is for over 20 years, they've been doing this and nothing has improved. The fisheries have not improved at all. There's been no successful recruitment in the sucker fish, but in Upper Klamath Lake. And really the only thing that's happened is the agricultural communities here have continued to suffer. We had a complete shutoff in 2001 where there was no irrigation water available. And that was kind of the first shot across the bow in this in this fight. And we've been working, trying to work with the agencies ever since to develop different solutions that don't require taking water from the farmers. And, but because there's a federal nexus here with it being a federal reclamation project, the easiest, the button they continue to keep pushing is taking more water from the climate project. And it just, it hasn't helped anyone, but it's absolutely devastated the agricultural communities here that rely upon that water. And so this year, the shutoff or at least the restrictions that are that are imposed, they're even happening earlier or what makes this year special for the protest? So we've unfortunately gotten used to dealing with reduced allocations and, you know, as well as I do that, you know, farmers are very adaptable people and we could, we've figured out a lot of ways to get by with a little bit of water We've done an incredible amount of conservation here in the in the basin, improved irrigation systems. Um, my grandfather wouldn't recognize the way we irrigate now, and everything is done to maximize every drop of water that we have. But what happened this year was our our allocation should be around a full supply is around four hundred thousand acre feet, and. This spring, with the biological opinions that govern the management of the lake and the river, there was the Bureau of Reclamation announced that our allocation would be 140,000 acre feet, which is less than a 40% supply. We didn't like that, but again, farmers are adaptable people. We quickly put plans into place to maximize the, the use of that water and you know, guys were going to fallow some fields and so they could move the water to other fields and work with their neighbors, supplement with groundwater where it was available and try and make the best of that situation. And that allocation was um, in early April. And the way they allocate water, that number, they've always told us it can go up, but it'll never go below that number. So guys made plans based on 140,000 acre feet of water supply. And then in the beginning of May, the Bureau of Reclamation came back out and said, no, we messed up. Uh, the allocation is going to be 55,000 acre feet, which is about a 7% supply. Hmm. Guys already had crops in the ground. 
they'd done a lot of work, uh, you know, thousands of dollars per acre invested in some of those crops in places that they could have been able to make it work at 140,000 acre feet, you know, maybe by drying up some lower, lower value crops nearby or something like that. And, but those crops that were planted based on 140,000 acre feet, all of a sudden when the allocation became 55,000 acre feet, it didn't work. And there's, there's guys that are, have so much invested in crops that they're not going to be able to take to harvest that um, we, we are going to see family farms go out of business this year here. So that was, that was the reason for our protest. Um, you know, and all these decisions have been based upon 20 years of bad science, a track record that shows that taking more water from the project doesn't work. Who is making the rules on this? Where are they being handed down from? So there's a number of agencies involved. You have National Marine Fisheries, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Bureau of Reclamation, which is the the contractor who su- is supposed to supply our water. So it's all federal agencies. Yeah, but isn't uh, USDA also a federal agency that's supposed to be supporting you and maybe should be going to bat to say, hey, you know, we need to make sure the farmers also are taken into consideration in this equation? You would you would think so. And they uh, but they're all separate agencies. And unfortunately, as especially we see in the West, um, things are governed by the Endangered Species Act and it's become weaponized and is used for purposes that it wasn't designed for. And, uh, you know, the farmers on this project are everybody, you know, we farm next to a national wildlife refuge. A lot of us farm on the national wildlife refuge. It's the only one in the United States that has agriculture on it because it's a key component to providing food and habitat for, um, for the waterfowl that come through this area on the Pacific flyway. And it, it's been twisted around and, and used to, and not only are the farmers here suffering, but the wildlife refuges are as well. And to me, it's kind of ironic that a lot of things you hear, I'm 39 years old. So I've, you know, been a a younger farmer starting out and the USDA is constantly trying to get more young people involved in agriculture and, you know, beginning small farmer incentives. And those are wonderful programs. And I think, you know, I'd love to see more young people in agriculture, but at the same time that you have the USDA incentivizing getting young, young and beginning people into agriculture, you have another government agency that's making these kind of decisions. And the first people that get wiped out are generally young, small and beginning farmers. No, I understand that side of the equation. And it's really unfortunate that here we're trying to do everything right in that, you know, there's nothing wrong with trying to protect endangered species, but when they do it at the expense of another resources, another resource, which, you know, I think that the American farmer, especially the younger one is also kind of an endangered species. And how do we ensure national security and food security when we're constantly pulling the rug out from underneath the resources and the people who feed us. So, so tell me a little bit more about um, what needs to change and how did yesterday's convoy reinforce that? So we need the, in the short term, we need the administration to get involved to get, get some solution, some short-term solutions on, on the ground that, you know, can keep everybody in business to, to fight another year. And 
But I think long, long term, the big picture, we need to acknowledge that with as many people as live in this state, as live in this nation, as live in this world, that we're going to have an effect on the environment. And there needs to be a consideration for the economy, for those people that are producing food and fiber or building transportation, whatever it may be, that needs to be a factor in decisions that are made like the Endangered Species Act. There is no consideration in that act for the people that it could put out of business or the fact that we need a domestic food supply in order to keep our nation secure. And we need to be looking at science-based approaches to this. It's not complicated to figure out that what we've been doing for 20 years here in the Klamath Basin has not worked. Obviously, we need to try something different. Well, I'm with you. You know, I, it, the thing is, I'm a tree hugger. I totally love the idea of protecting fish and protecting species. And I think it's important that we do it. The thing is, is that too many times we get into these discussions and it turns into an either or that you got to save the sucker, which I don't know about suckers. I think those are, <laughs> we always threw those back, you know, um, but uh, you got, it, it turns into, well, we have to protect the sucker at any cost. And then the other side of this sometimes says, well, we have to protect the farm economy. I really think that in this day and age with all the technology we have, there's got to be a way to do both. And in the world's richest nation, there's got to be ways that we can uh, ensure more research and better research into, into sustainability of species like you know endangered species. Of course, that's important. But at the same time, we have to be able to do what you're saying, you know, keep the food supply intact and respect the um, uh, ability of producers to continue to produce. And I, I don't know that this is an either or. And I think that when we start to get into the, if we could eventually get to a place where the rhetoric was, how do we solve both problems? Then maybe we'll have some real change. But until then, it's just going to be a battle of, you know, the two really important vital ideas that are uh, that look like they're in conflict when they don't necessarily have to be. And I don't know, do you, does that resonate at all? Absolutely. No, nope, we feel the exact same way. The, the best thing that could happen for my farm is to have healthy, sustainable fisheries, both in Upper Klamath Lake and downstream on the Klamath River, because that will secure my irrigation water more than anything is if those fish are doing great, my farm's doing great because they're not coming after my water in order to support those those fish and a lot of it's been based on really poor science because it's it's the easy solution um this is a federal reclamation project so there's a so they can use the endangered species act to stop irrigation deliveries and we just need some acknowledgement that that's easy but it's not working we got to we got to look at something else and the the farmers on the project have been I'd say very progressive in trying to find solutions with some of the other stakeholders involved. I don't know how many trips this winter I made six hours down to the coast to visit with the Yurok tribe, who's very concerned about the, the salmon down there and trying to come up with some approaches with them to fix this mess that doesn't devastate my community. And I put a lot of time and effort into that. And so did a lot of other farmers on the project and, and then we turn around and we're right back in court suing each other now. And 
nobody wins in that situation. No one. Really, just to kind of put a bow on this, what is it that you want to see happen? What would be the best possible outcome? We want to farm. We're good at it. We enjoy doing it. And we have an irrigation project here that was designed to farm. And the only thing that we need is a reliable water supply. And we need that consistent water supply. We're more than willing to share it if it's based on some sound science. But our community cannot continue to suffer at the expense of the Endangered Species Act without there being good reason why. Absolutely. So if there are listeners who want to learn more or even better yet, listeners who want to, you know, uh, write a letter or put some information on social media or, you know, get connected and aware of this just to be able to support your efforts, what, where would they look and what should they do? And basically our, our protest yesterday was to just to draw some attention to this issue. And we had, uh, we had a, a convoy of tractors and trucks and, pickups and everything you can imagine, combines. And we drove um, from Merrill, Oregon, which is just north of, of my town, Tilly Lake, up to Climbing Falls, and then back out. And we all met in a field out there, um, a field that's not receiving any irrigation water this year. And we were, we were expecting, you know, maybe at most a thousand vehicles and, you know, maybe a thousand people or 1,500. We ended up with the, somewhere between three and 4,000 tractors and trucks. And we don't know how many thousands of people because <laughs> there was no way to count that many, but it was, it was an incredible um, showing of support for our community. And there was, it wasn't just farmers in the, in the convoy. There was people from all over the West who are just concerned about this issue because they see the repercussions in their communities as well. And they see what's happened to our community and they know it's not right. But as part of that convoy, we, we have a, a new website. It's shutdownfedup.org. And we also have a Facebook page. So if you just look on Facebook for shutdown fed up, because that was kind of kind of our motto. You, our, our water supply has been shut down and we're fed up with it. And uh, it's also a really good hashtag on Twitter if you like to follow that. So that's how I actually found you. So that's really, uh, really great. All right. Well, Ben Duval, uh, thank you very, very much for uh, speaking with me today. You know, I wish you all the best and please keep in touch if there's anything else we can do for you or if you'd like to, us to continue to bring awareness to the situation. Uh, we'll keep an eye on it. OK. All right. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, do your best to help promote this with other people. We're very interested in technology, but also in the way in which policy affects the people that feed us. It's really important for us to be able to think about these situations and how policy impacts the farmers in our nation. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech Podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. 
your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.